But we're just going to get right into it. All right, so like uh, if you're looking for your seat, like we're just going to keep on going while you find your seat. But we're just going to get right into it because there's, I think there's a lot to chew through today. Um, we have been continuing to go through our sermon series in Isaiah. It's this very big, thick, but full and rich book. And so I'm just going to start. I'm just going to try and catch us up a little bit. Um, basically what has been going on is the picture of Isaiah, the story of Isaiah. We see that God has seen the injustice and corruption of his people. He has looked on the Israelite people. He has seen their injustice and corruption. And then we read in Isaiah that in an act of righteous judgment, he would allow the nations of Assyria and then Babylon to take the Israelite people into exile. And last week, where we got to in the story was Pastor Kathy was up here. She was talking about how um, the, is the, the exile for the Israelites had been over, that it was time and they were able to finally be allowed to return back home and rebuild and kind of start anew. Right, and so um, Pastor Kathy probably left with like a lot of hope and a lot of joy and uh, like, like new beginnings and all of that good stuff. And really, that really is good news. But today what we'll see is that there are still problems with the nation of Israel. That even after their exile, God's people, the Israelite people, would still be and were still blind and deaf to God. And I just want to read to you from our, our word today because it kind of describes and explains, gives you a picture of where things are at now. So our passage today comes from Isaiah chapter 42, and we're starting at verse 18. And there it is, and it reads like this. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this, this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Will attend and listen for the time to come. And our last slide, starting at verse 24, it reads, Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways um, they would not walk, in whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome. And now, this is, I mean, it's, it's not a lot of verses, but it's a very dense passage. It's a very thick passage. There is a lot going on in these few verses. And I think there can be things in it that are getting in the way of us seeing and hearing what the passage has to say to us today. So to help us see and hear this passage, we're going to look at three areas of the text today. We're going to look at the part of the text that talks about being blind and deaf, we're going to look at the part of the text that talks about being plundered and looted. And finally, we'll look at the part of the text that talks about the anger of the Lord. And hopefully that will um, 
help us see what's happening here. But first, we'll talk about blind and deaf, then plundered and looted, then the anger of the Lord. And so first, blind and deaf. And the first thing that we see in this passage is that God's servant, the Israelite people, they are blind and deaf. Now, in the Bible, spiritual blindness and spiritual deafness is almost always a condition of one thing, and that condition is idolatry. In the biblical text, often spiritual blindness and deafness is a result of worshiping and serving something else besides God. You know, one of the presuppositions in the Bible is that we are all worshiping creatures, that we all have something in this life that we are exalting, something in this life that we are serving. In the words of the great American songwriter Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody. Right? you got to serve somebody, whether it's God, whether it's an idol, you got to serve somebody. And you know, church, if, if we were going to define our terms, I would define idolatry in this way. Idolatry is whatever ignites your passions. It's whatever captures your affections that it becomes a top priority in your life. Idolatry is whatever you place first above all things in your life. Whatever it is, whatever that thing is, you are worshiping it. You are lifting it up as the most important thing. And you know, the orientation towards whatever it is that you worship is the orientation of service. Whatever it is that you worship, you're going to serve it. Whatever it is that you worship, you are going to live your life for it. So whatever it is that you worship, you'll become its servant, and it will change how you live. It will shape how you see and function in the world, and it will determine what you think is wise and beautiful. Like to that point, it will go so deep in you that it will determine what you think is wise and beautiful. For example, if you worship money, if you see money as the most important thing in this life, if money is what you turn to for your security instead of God, or if money is what you turn to for your comfort in distress instead of the Lord, what you will begin to see as wise is things like how to maximize your profit. What you will begin to see as wise are things like how to find the best deal ever. That will be the kind of information that will really shine to you. That will be the kind of information that will really glitter in your eyes. So, like, if you worship money and you see a jacket that's $30 cheaper than all the other jackets like it, what you may have a blind eye towards is whether it's ethically made. Or you may have a blind eye towards whether it's sustainably made. Or you may have a blind eye towards whether or not you'll even need the jacket because what you'll really see what will really shine to you is the discount. And that's the thing. If money is the object of your worship, money can become all that you see, and everything else will just be something to sacrifice, something to put on the altar of money, whether it's justice or ethics or your own time and energy. Or take another example, uh, family. If you worship family, if family is your most important thing, then everything you see in life will be colored by the lens of family. All the things and the strategies that will benefit your family, they will begin to look wise to you. And you will find yourself willing to sacrifice all kinds of things in the name of family, whether that be sacrificing your social life 
or your career, your gifts and your skills, or your health and your well-being. You'll be willing to place all sorts of things on the altar of family. And that's because we're wired for worship. We are wired to serve something. And your practical wisdom, how you see and live in the world, is shaped out of what you worship. Right? Your practical wisdom, how you see and live in the world, is shaped out of what you worship. And so this information or this picture, it can help give us a big picture view of what's happening in our passage. Right? Because in our passage, God has chosen this people. He's chosen the Israelites' people. And for generations, God drew near to them, and they saw him in action. For generations, God spoke to them, and they had ears to follow him because they worshipped him. And God's hope was that his chosen people would be his servants and messengers, that they would serve God by, like it says in verse 21 of our text, by magnifying God's law and glorifying him, that they would be God's servants by glorifying him and magnifying God's law. And that they... Uh, chosen people, the Israelites, would be God's messengers by telling other people of the goodness of God. That they would be God's messengers by inviting them to follow and worship God as well. But we see in this passage, instead of serving God, the Israelites began to set their eyes on other things. Other things began to shine for them. Other things began to look beautiful and attractive to them. And they began to worship them. And they worshipped them and worshipped them until eventually they became completely blind and deaf to God altogether. And so, church, in this passage, there is this very great irony, right? And that irony is God's people who once looked and listened to God and were called to show and tell of God suddenly became blind and deaf to God. And functionally, what that looked like is they started to live in the world based on the wisdom of their idols and not the wisdom of God. They started to live in the world based on the wisdom of their idols and not the wisdom of God. And that's why I think that right after, in our passage, there is all this talk about the Israelites being looted and plundered. And that's the second thing we're talking about today, right? Being looted and plundered. And I think this part of our passage is so very important because if there is a kind of wisdom that flows out of what you worship, one of the best ways that you can evaluate the goodness of that wisdom is by seeing the fruit that that wisdom produces. Right? If there is a kind of wisdom that flows out of what you worship, one of the best ways you can evaluate the goodness of that wisdom is by seeing what grows out of it, what it produces in your life, the fruit that it produces in your life. And throughout Isaiah, we are told that none of the fruit that came out of Israel's idolatry was good fruit. In chapter 2, we are told that it led to oppression and an indifference to the poor. In Isaiah chapter 5, we are told that it led to injustice and corruption. And in verse 22 of our passage, we are told that it led the Israelites to be trapped and enslaved and robbed with no one to rescue them and no one to restore them. And church, that is the thing with idolatry, isn't it? In the short run, Cultivating the fruit of idols can look wise and wonderful, but in the long run, it can become self-destructive. Right? In the short run, cultivating the fruit of idols can look so wise and so very wonderful, but in the long run, it can be self-destructive. For example, let's take a look at the examples of idols, uh, of 
of money and family again. And I bring up money and family so much because I really do think in the city of Vancouver, in the city of Richmond, the idols of money and family are two of the idols that we struggle with the most, right? But, you know, in the short run, worshiping the idol of money, it can sure look good. I mean, it could provide a little bit more security for our home, a little bit more stability, a little more comfort. But in the long run, worshiping the idol of money can have terrible cultural and environmental effects, can it not? And worshiping the idol of money can also affect you. Worshiping money can make you cold and calculating. And instead of using money and loving people, it can make you use people and love money instead. Or you take a look at family. You know, in the short run, worshiping the idol of family can look so very wise and look so very good. But in the long run, it could lead you to hover over your children and parent them in a way where they become completely overly dependent on you where they become full of anxiety without you. Or it could lead you to put so much pressure and dependence on your spouse that your expectations of them to be your everything, to be your lover, to be your best friend, to be your social connection, to be everything can turn around and crush them. Because nobody can take the weight of that kind of worship. You know, in the short run, cultivating the fruit of idols can look so very wise and wonderful. But in the long run, it can be self-destructive. It can be terrible. You know, verse 22 of our passage, it tells us something else about idols. And that is an idol will take from you. An idol will ask you to sacrifice for it and put things on its altar. An idol will demand your service, but in the end, an idol will never save you. An idol will never restore you and make you whole. But then you have the biblical text, you have, and you have the claims of the Bible. And the claim of the Bible is the best place for wisdom, the best, the true source of wisdom, of true wisdom, is God. That's the, that's the biblical claim. The best place for wisdom is God. Why? Because God created the world, and he created everything in it, including us. And so God, of course, would be the best source to show us how we can live and thrive in the world, right? And that is why it says in the, in the wisdom literature, like all over the wisdom literature, like in Psalms and in Proverbs, it says this key verse, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You may have seen that. If you're reading Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, you might see that, that, that line, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because if wisdom comes from what you worship, as you fear God, as you revere him, as you serve him, as you worship him, you will grow in his wisdom. You will grow in his ability to navigate through life's complexities, and it will produce in you this fruit of deep peace and deep joy and this fullness of life. That is the claim of the biblical text. And you know, church, if the Bible is correct, then the best thing for our well-being, the best thing for our relationships, the best thing for our families is to place God above them. The best thing for our families is to place God above them, right? To place God above our money, above our children, above our spouses, and to pray prayers like, God, would you show me how I can glorify you with my money? Or pray prayers like, God, would you show me how I could honor you and obey you as a partner and as a parent. 
because the wisdom for how we navigate through all of life's complexities begins when we fear the Lord, begin when we place him first and we revere and we worship him. And so really, our passage today is about the Israelites finally reaping the bad fruit of their idolatry. And, you know, I love how Isaiah chapter 5 describes this situation because Isaiah chapter 5, it's almost like a parallel passage to the passage that we're looking at today. But instead of talking about Israel as a servant, Isaiah chapter 5 describes all of Israel as a vineyard. Isaiah chapter 5 talks about Israel as this vineyard that God lovingly planted and God's hope was that Israel would grow and bear good fruit. But instead, Isaiah chapter 5 says that the fruit that the vine of Israel produced was bad. It was wild. And because of that, Isaiah chapter 5 said that God would stop his care of the vineyard, that he would no longer tend to it, that he would remove his hedge of protection from around it. And that's what we see from verse 24 of our passage, right? Verse 24, it says, God, in God's anger, he gave the Israelites over to looters and plunderers. He gave the people of Jacob over to plunderers, right? He allowed the nations of Assyria and then Babylon to take them into exile. And so that's the last thing that we're talking about today, right? God's anger, because in God's anger, right? And this is the thing that we need to know about God's anger, church. Or this is the thing that one of the things that I think we need to know about God's anger. And that is that God's anger is not like our anger usually is. I love how um, the pastor Timothy Keller describes God's anger, and he describes it in this way. God's anger is, and I quote, a settled, fixed, incorruptible opposition towards evil and injustice, so that the, in the end, no one will be able to get away with anything. All accounts are settled, and everything is made right. Let me read that for us again, that God's anger is a settled, fixed, incorruptible opposition towards evil and injustice so that in the end, nobody will be able to get away with anything. All accounts are settled and everything is made right. In other words, there is this restorative aspect to God's anger. God's anger comes from a place that sees the brokenness of the things around it or sees the brokenness of the world around it and desires to make them right again desires to make them whole again. And you know, church, we can see the restorative aspect of God's anger with the Israelites in Isaiah because in Isaiah we are told that part of the reason that God allowed the Israelites to be exiled was that they might repent and be returned and restored to him. That in their exile, God was taking the Israelites away from their idols so that they could have eyes to see him once again. Do you see the restorative aspect in that action? You know, church, I think that's important to remember because I think a lot of the times, I don't think we, we consider God's anger to be restorative. But it's partly God's anger against injustice. It's partly God's anger against brokenness that refuses to leave things as they are. It's part of God's anger at brokenness that refuses to let things stay broken forever. God's anger is so tied to his desire to make things right and good and pure again. And you know, church, I mean, I, I think it's like, it's good to talk about, but it's, it's, it's good to give examples, right? 
And I remember seeing this kind of restorative anger one time in my dad. (laughs) I remember seeing this restorative anger um, so clearly that it stuck with me to this day. Um, And basically what happened is my dad gave me some money to go buy a newspaper. It was like $1.25. And uh, in those days, newspapers were in these kind of boxing machines. I think they're still around. They're just, we don't see as many of them. But newspapers were in these kind of boxing machines. And you'd put the money in the the money slot. And then you'd pull this whole top section open, right? And then there would be this whole stack of papers inside the machine. And then you would take the one and you'd close it. That's what my dad was expecting that I would do. So I took the money. I walked up to this machine. It's a Globe and Mail Sunday edition. The business is the super thick one, right? And I put my dad's money in it, and I opened the top section, and then my 12-year-old mind had this wonderful idea. And it thought of something so incredibly wise. Or at least I thought it was incredibly wise. And I thought... Instead of taking one newspaper, I can take the whole stack, right? Because nobody would know, and it would all cost me the same. And so that's what I did. I was carrying this huge stack of Sunday edition Globe and Mails, and on my way home, with the smell of these papers wafting in my nose, I began to dream dreams. I could start a business. I could build an empire. I could be rich. But I needed an investor. First, I needed capital. I needed seed money. And so I showed my father this stack of papers, my proof of concept. And I began my pitch. And as I spoke, I saw in my father's eyes anger. (laughs) It just grew and grew and grew. And he was like looking at me like, whose child are you? Like, why would you do this? Why would you even think of this? How could you even come to this? And let's just say, in a very short moment, he laid waste to my well-thought-out plans. He crushed my young newspaper empire. He wrecked it into rubble, and he left it in ruins. And church, that was for my own good. And then, my dad did something that I will never forget. He took the stack of newspapers that were sitting on the table and he walked all the way back to the newspaper machine. He put money in the machine again to open it and he returned all the papers back where they belonged. I will never forget that because it was a moment of grace. I couldn't pay for those those papers and I couldn't even pay to return them. I didn't have the money. I was 12 years old. And Asian people don't get allowance. But in the midst of my dad's anger, he was driven to restore things. In the midst of my dad's anger, he paid the price to restore, right? He bore the cost to make things right. That's something I will never forget. And you know, church, the passage that we're looking at today, it actually tells us that even after their exile, Israel was still blind and deaf to God, right? That's what it clearly says. They were still blind and deaf to God. They did not understand. They could not see what God was doing. That's verse 25. They did not take God's rebuke of them to heart. In the end, Israel would never be able to be the servant that God called them to be. But Isaiah tells us that God, in the midst of that, still refused to give up, still refused to leave things as they were. 
he still desired to restore and reconcile all things back to himself. And Isaiah tells us that, what inst- that instead of relying on his blind servant Israel, God would instead raise up a true and better servant. That's the hope that we see in Isaiah. And it, Isaiah goes on to tell us that this servant would somehow restore all things by suffering. That this servant, this true and better servant, would go and restore all things by paying the price, by bearing the cost himself. And church, that's Jesus, this suffering servant. That's what Jesus came to do. Jesus was the true and better servant. He fixed his eyes on God. He was full of the wisdom of God, and he was fully obedient to the ways of God, even when God led him all the way to the cross in order to die for our sins. And on the cross, Jesus fully ate the matured fruit of our idolatry. He ate the fruit of death so that we might be able to taste the fullness of life with him. And you know what's very amazing to me, church, is that Jesus says very, something very important about all of this in Matthew chapter 11. And he says in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest in me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You know, church, a yoke, it was a a harness that a farmer would put on their oxen so that their oxen would do work for them, right? Yoke is a harness that a farmer would put on their oxen so that the oxen would serve them. And so part of what Jesus is saying here before he goes to the cross, part of what Jesus is saying here is, serve me. You have to serve somebody. Serve me. Learn from me. Receive your wisdom from me. Your idols will not be able to save you. Your idols will not be able to restore things. But on the cross, I will save. So serve me. You know, church, we are so much like the people of Israel today. There are so many times we have become blind to God because we have fixed our eyes on other things. There are so many glittering objects in this world that capture our attention and become idols that we serve and we worship. And part of what Jesus is saying in his ministry is he's saying your idols will ask you to sacrifice for them, but I have sacrificed for you. Your idols will not let you rest. They will ask you to serve and serve and serve, but you can rest in me. So serve me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And church, I truly believe that when we look to him, when we listen to his word, and when we serve him and follow him with our lives, I will believe, I believe that we will have eyes to see more and more. We'll have eyes to see that even now, He is doing a new thing, and he is growing in us good fruit and leading us on into life. So let's pray that we might focus on him more and more. Let's pray. Heavenly Lord and gracious Father, 
Like, I just feel like in this culture, we can just be so drawn to being independent, so drawn to being masters of our own souls, so drawn to um, following ourselves. But Lord, I thank you for the grace of, of your son, of Jesus, who shows us that there is rest in serving and following you, that you show the way towards life, you show the way towards joy and peace, and you show the way towards um, a deeper relationship with who you are. So Lord, I pray that as a community, we might be able to follow you a little more every day, that we can set our eyes on you. And whatever it is that we're looking at that we see as more beautiful or is capturing our attention or is um, that we are drawn to, that by the power of your spirit, we can look to you and see you as even more lovely, even more beautiful, even more holy, even more worthy than all of the things in this world. All of this we pray in your son's most holy and precious name.